0: This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about an escalating U.S. military campaign against Islamist insurgents, but not where you might first think. I'm talking about Somalia, where there's been a surge of U.S. airstrikes that have killed hundreds of people. These strikes have been part of a broader and intensifying campaign against al-Shabaab, an extremist group affiliated with al-Qaeda. Yet our sense is there's little awareness that the U.S. military is active in Somalia, what we're doing there, why we're worried about al-Shabaab, and what this means for the long-troubled nation in the Horn of Africa. Joining me to help shed some light on these questions are two distinguished experts. First is Bronwyn Bruton, who is the Director of Programs and Studies and the Deputy Director of the Africa Center at the Atlantic Council. Welcome, Bronwyn. It's great to have you on Deep Dish.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And joining us as well is Paul Williams, who is an associate professor of international affairs at George Washington University's Elliott School. His latest book is Fighting for Peace in Somalia. Welcome, Paul. Great to have you as well. Thanks for the invitation. So, Bronwyn, let me start with you to help kick off and frame up this conversation a little bit with a very brief kind of 60-second overview of what is al-Shabaab, why was it formed, how many folks belong to this group, and, and, and what are their goals?
1: It's, that's a fantastic question, and it, it's really important, I think, for the U.S. audience to understand that— We describe al-Shabaab as a terrorist group in the United States. But primarily, al-Shabaab was created to resist the U.S. imposition of a government on Somalia. This is a government that wasn't voted for, that was created outside of Somalia's borders, that's never had legitimacy. And al-Shabaab's primary goal uh, is to get rid of that government and to fight the African Union peacekeepers who are keeping it alive in Somalia. Al-Shabaab has never launched a direct attack on US interests. It is affiliated with Al-Qaeda, but it has never, for example, sought out an attack on a US embassy, and it's never really targeted American journalists in Somalia. Um, It has primarily struck targets in Uganda and Kenya because of those countries' uh, participation in the peacekeeping mission in support of the government. And I think it's an important distinction to draw. Um, I hope during this podcast we can talk a little bit about it, the the word terrorism and why we're banding it about so much.
0: Great, lots to un- lots to unpack there. I Really, and uh, appreciate the succinctness of that of that overview. So, so Paul, um, you know, as Bronwyn uh, mentioned, and as I did in my introduction, um, you know, I, I said this is an Al Qaeda affiliated group. What does that actually mean? And, you know, what is their relationship? Oftentimes that association is meant to, to justify a threat versus the United States, right? They're part of that, that league. So in this case, what does that mean that they're affiliated with al-Qaeda?
2: Yeah, that's, again, a good question that we need to unpack because um, we need to remember that al-Shabaab is an organization with what I would say is many faces to it, right? It's, it's not a monolithic or, or homogenous group. And what I mean by al-Shabaab having multiple faces is it's, number one, a resistance movement, as Bronwyn has mentioned, you know, trying to resist foreign interference, domestic corruption and and perversion as it sees it. It's also a proto-government in some parts of south-central Somalia where it's really running the show and providing basic services. Um, it's also, though, got a criminal face. Uh, as a criminal organisation, it demands taxes from people, Um forcible tributes in terms of, you know, uh, coercively uh, recruiting children. Um, It demands protection money in certain areas, that type of thing. It's also got a face as a fighting force where it wages, I would say, you know, some um, conventional attacks against uh, AMISOM and the Somali army's bases, but also mainly asymmetric tactics. And it's also got a face as a sort of wannabe uh, regional caliphate, if you like. And so, to understand what it means to say that al-Shabaab is sort of affiliated or or supports al-Qaeda, we've got to take those multiple faces into account. And so what al-Shabaab is looking for from al-Qaeda primarily, I would say, uh, are additional resources, sometimes additional expertise and skills. But it's wrong to think of uh, al-Qaeda basically creating or establishing al-Shabaab. It's really al-Shabaab was formed as a primarily domestic organization and it's reached out for allies around the world that it think can help it in those tasks and Al-Qaeda being the uh, the main one.
0: So one of the one of the pieces that's reported in the news when Al-Shabaab is in the news, in the United States anyway, it's usually uh, with respect to a, an attack, um, usually in Kenya on, th- on targets like hotels, business centers, malls. Um, if this is about a reaction to an imposed government um, in Somalia, why is, help us understand why Kenya is the target of these, these activities and attacks. What are they trying to do with this?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated question. Um, the the easy answer is that it's because Kenya is participating in the African Union peacekeeping mission, which is not really a peacekeeping mission as the average person would understand it. Um, it's primarily a protection mission uh, to keep the government alive, the government offices and government officials alive. So this is um, the Somalia
0: I, government that you're talking about. So we've got, yeah. if I understand this, African Union troops who are in Somalia protecting that government. Is that right? It,
1: that's right. There are approximately twenty-two thousand, twenty-two and a half thousand troops there currently, and their mission is primarily to protect the government, and also to fight Al Shabaab. And that is to to um, it basically to um, conduct assaults on Al Shabaab positions. Um, Kenya is one of the countries that has the capability of launching airstrikes, as far as I understand it. Is that right, Paul?
2: Yeah, so I would say um, Kenya has provided a, a number of um, airstrikes with um, jets and, uh, and helicopter gunships and the like. I'd, I'd also add one of the reasons why I think Al-Shabaab is particularly active in Kenya and um, hence has attacked it is that also to do with the recruitment. As I mentioned before, Al-Shabaab is primarily a Somali organisation, but it's extended its reach into different parts of the Horn of Africa. And Kenya is actually one of the areas where it's recruited Um, from quite extensively from about the sort of 2011 um, period onwards so it's had uh, the ability to move across the very porous border between Somalia and Kenya for a number of years and that has facilitated its ability to make um, attacks in Kenya which it hasn't been able to necessarily do in some of the other neighbours.
0: So one of the dimensions, which can get overemphasized, but I'm wondering if it exists here, is, is there a religious dimension to the conflict between um, uh, Al-Shabaab
1: and and Kenya? I would say no, there is not. Um, there's not a, a religious dimension in the conflict between Al-Shabaab and Kenya, and there is not a religious dimension in the conflict between the, the Somali government and Al-Shabaab. Uh, Somalia is a Muslim country. And Al-Shabaab is a Muslim and Islamist organization. But I think that it is one of the primary problems with U.S. policy that we look at Al-Shabaab and we look at Al-Shabaab's violence and we attribute it to the fact that it's an Islamist group. Al-Shabaab is a, it's an African rebel movement. And all African rebel movements are violent. And the Somali government is violent. Every actor in Somalia has killed civilians with abandon, from the peacekeepers to the government, to the Kenyans, to al-Shabaab. Unfortunately, now it's appearing even to American special forces. Uh, Civilians have been killed with impunity in Somalia, going back to the warlords in the 1990s. It is a violent country, and al-Shabaab is reflecting that. But I think that it's really wrong for the United States to attribute that violence to its it's religion. And I think that it's it's probably preventing us from finding solutions in Somalia that might otherwise feel very obvious.
2: I'd agree with that, with, uh, uh, with one caveat. I mean, I, I think there are some sort of, let's say, theological and, and intellectual and even societal debates about the best version of uh, Islam um, that should work in Somalia. And there, we do see disagreements in Somalia like we would in any other country over how to interpret the, uh, the authentic version of, um, of Islamist theology here. But I think Bronwyn's absolutely right that the primary reason why there's war and conflict and um, turbulence in Somalia is really about governance. And the, the key issue here is not religion. It's about the fact, really, that um, Somalis themselves disagree over how this country should be governed and, and what makes this a particularly difficult and uh, complicated set of uh, issues to deal with is that since the civil war in the late 1980s and the collapse of the central government in 1991, we've had essentially two and a half uh, decades where Somalia had to function without a central government. And as a result, um, debates, arguments, war and conflict has really been fueled in that sort of, um, in the absence of a central government by these debates about who should rule and with what rules should they rule and how should we change and think about governments. And as... Bronwyn mentioned earlier, the fact that Ethiopian soldiers brought a transitional government that was established in Kenya into Mogadishu in late 2006 was the primary spark that turned Al-Shabaab from a very small sort of fringe uh, extremist movement to a large domestic resistance movement against the the Ethiopian forces and uh, the legitimacy of the transitional
0: government. Which is a great um, uh, launching point for me to turn our discussion toward U.S. policy. As I as I listen to you all describe the dynamics in the region, I, I don't hear either of you uh, really seeing al-Shabaab as a direct threat um, to the United States. And yet, you know, one of the reasons for this particular episode of the podcast was recent reporting of increased U.S. military uh, activity against al-Shabaab in the region. So could you... Um, What is your sense of, you know, is this, is al-Shabaab a threat to the United States? And if not, or if so, um, what's motivating uh, U.S. policy and U.S. military involvement?
1: It's, you know, unfortunately, um, I think a lot of what the United States is doing in Somalia currently has to do what happened in 1993 with the Black Hawk Down incident in which American soldiers were mutilated by a Somali mob. Um, Since that time, the United States has had what I would call an irrational fear of Somalia and has believed that because it's been an anarchy, that it would inevitably provide a home for Al-Qaeda and a launching pad for terror assaults on American interests in the region. And that has been the driving force behind U.S. policy, the, the single greatest driving force behind U.S. policy. ...is the American conviction that Somalia is a threat. Um, And it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy, as Paul was mentioning. Um, But I don't think that it is one that is particularly grounded in reality. I don't believe that al-Shabaab poses a threat to U.S. interests... ...except in the most abstract sense. Um, And I doubt very much that if the U.S. were not in Somalia... ...and were not so engaged as a combatant in Somali political affairs that al-Shabaab would be very much interested in the U.S. at all.
0: Do you agree with that,
2: Paul? Yeah, I think the the lens, if you like, um, through which uh, the American government has looked at um, Somalia and, and designed Somali policy is, as Bromwood said, primarily that of counterterrorism. And it's, I think, inflated um, al-Shabaab, if you like, which uh, is really, as I say, the sort of symptom of the um, the governance problems in the the country and the conflicts over governance, U.S. policy has been primarily designed and resourced around that counterterrorism issue. But if you look at U.S. policy um, slightly more broadly, you'll see that it's not just about al-Shabaab. And um, the new U.S. ambassador, uh, Yamamoto, who arrived in uh, Somalia last year, outlined that there were sort of four planks, if you like, of U.S. uh, engagement with Somalia. One was about trying to build um, democratic and accountable uh, institutions, Uh, A second aim was to try and build up effective um, Somali security forces. A third was to try and build um, greater degrees of stabilisation and bring economic recovery programmes into the country. And the fourth one was about um, delivering humanitarian assistance. So there is a a sort of broader set of interests involved there. But the majority of the resources, as Bronwyn mentioned, has been ploughed into the military and the um, the counter-terrorism side and focused highly, um, uh, I would say, sort of, you know, unhelpfully on Al-Shabaab.
1: I have to disagree with Paul a little bit in that, you know, I I think the U.S. likes to pretend that we have different interests in Somalia, but I think it would be fairer to call it one plank and three toothpicks. The Somali government that the U.S. has created and backed is unquestionably the most corrupt in the world. It is the most corrupt government in the world, according to Transparency International. So for the U.S. to claim that governance is a plank of our engagement is fairly fanciful. What do we mean by that? Um, I think a lot of I I personally think a lot of what the U.S. government is doing when it says that we care about governance and when it says that we care about stability is really trying to put a a more palatable facade on what is almost 100 percent a counter terror driven mission.
0: So. I want to pick up on this point, because I think it's fascinating. And and, and Paul, I think you were articulating what the U.S. has, has um, stated its goals are uh, in the region. And uh, Brian, when you very colorfully characterize those, those goals, I, I want to You know, as I hear this, I think about recent U.S. experience in trying to both fight terrorism as well as doing kind of state-building projects. And, of course, the vivid examples of the recent past are Afghanistan and Iraq. And one of the challenges in those situations has been, is there a government partner who has the credibility and the ability to actually stand up a government that can function and create security, create economic development, um, uh, cre- build a, a democratic society. And um, you know we've seen, uh, let's put it mildly, great challenges with those two cases. And my, my sense is, in listening to you, that the, the, the uh, Somali government is even more fragile and perhaps even has less potential. Um, to be able to achieve, uh, achieve those goals. So how's the United States, you know, if that if this is what they're trying to do, um, how are we even trying to go about doing that in a context with such a, a problematic government?
1: You know, I, I think the tragedy of Somalia is that there is potentially an effective governance partner there. It's just Al-Shabaab.
0: That's pretty provocative. You want to jump in, Paul?
2: Well yeah, I mean I I would agree with the uh, the basic point that the all international engagement in Somalia has basically lacked an effective and legitimate government partner to work with. I would say that level of legitimacy has changed slightly over the years. If you go back to two thousand and six, I agree with Bromwyn that the, the government, the transitional federal government that was brought into Mogadishu on the back of Ethiopian troops was highly illegitimate with local society. I would say then if you fast forward to where we are now, sort of um, uh, 2017, 2018 time, I would say there's a bit more legitimacy to the, uh, the government than we saw back in um, 2006. But in terms of capacity and effectiveness, uh, it's still way, way short of what we would ideally like. And that's not just a problem for, for US policy. That's a problem, uh, as we mentioned before, for the African Union mission and the other international partners. I mean the basic issue here is I think twofold. One is that after a long period of state collapse the governments have uh, really um been no more than sort of paper governments. They've not been able to do concrete things like deliver services and real um peace dividends to populations certainly not beyond um the Benadir region which is around um Mogadishu. So there's that sort of basic issue of of capacity. And secondly, um there's a sort of issue about clan politics where the governments that we've seen in Somalia over the last 13 years have been heavily composed of particular types of clans. um, And as a result, clan politics has meant that that government in Mogadishu, although it's called the federal government of Somalia now, is not necessarily seen as legitimate out in the regions because it's seen as being captured by certain clan interests. And so when any international partners work with what they call the, the sovereign and federal government of Somalia, That doesn't mean that necessarily a lot of local Somalis feel the same way about those um, institutions.
1: If you don't mind, I'm going to jump in. Um, One of the most interesting things about the situation in Somalia is that it is yet another attempt by Western institutions to create a government that is modeled on Western democratic norms. And there's not much evidence that those will work well in Somalia. What is potentially very interesting about al-Shabaab is its flexibility and fluidity. There isn't, although we think of it as a, a very harsh institution that cuts off hands and cuts off heads and stones people, the reality is that it's very different from village to village and from region to region in Somalia. It is an organization that has wound its way within and around the clan system. Co-opting clan leaders, coordinating with them, leaving them alone when it's necessary to do so—it's um, it, Al Shabaab has created a governance structure that is as authentically Somali and fluid as the clan system itself. And in my opinion, as somebody who's spent many years promoting democracy, that's what you need in Somalia. And I wonder a lot if there were not a government, a Western government in place in Somalia that was keeping Somalis on the fence, because we've created a very bipolar situation where a not very liked Al-Shabaab is battling a not very liked government. Um, if people didn't feel that they were empowering this government um, by resisting Al-Shabaab, I think they would resist Al-Shabaab a lot more. Um, and I have a lot of confidence in the Somali people's ability to make Al-Shabaab more moderate. Uh, And I wish that that policymakers, U.S. policymakers, would spend more time considering the Somali people as an ally because they're not particularly extreme. They are a moderate culture. They're capitalists. They're entrepreneurs. And they mostly want to get on with business. And I have a feeling that if Al-Shabaab didn't support that goal, that they wouldn't survive very long in Somalia because no other governing entity has. Um, My bet would be, That if the U.S. government would put their money on the Somali people instead of their own imported institutions, we'd be doing a lot better in the fight against al-Shabaab and in the... the the fight for stability.
0: So I want to build on that and and bring you into on in this discussion, Paul. Um, again, with the you know knowing the limitations of analogies, but one of the things that strikes me listening to this conversation is the pivot that the U.S. had made has made in some ways in Afghanistan, where um, you know now we're seeing a separation of the way that that U.S. policymakers are thinking about the Taliban as a local actor and and Al Qaeda and starting negotiations Directly um, with the with the Taliban, are there is this part of a path forward? I mean, Bronwyn laid out a you know a, a, an implicit kind of direction for U.S. policy to go. Do we see uh, you know we've got an increase in bombing, so we probably don't see this yet. But are there lessons to be learned, and is a similar pivot part of the political solution in Somalia?
2: Yeah, I definitely think there are lessons to be learned. And I think it's very clear that you can't sort of um, bomb your way to, to military victory over a group like al-Shabaab for the reason that um, reasons that Bronwyn has, has mentioned. I mean, military power and military force alone are not going to be able to defeat an organization like al-Shabaab. And so we've seen from the U.S. side that military power has been you know, um, occasional special forces operations, and now, as you mentioned, the uh, the uptick in the number of, of airstrikes. But the military power on the ground for the last 12 years, or international military power on the ground for the last 12 years, has been mainly through the African Union mission in Somalia. And then we've got all sorts of different armed actors, uh, the Somali National Army, various regional and clan militias, and the sort of uh, Darwish um, sort of paramilitary police groups All have been using force for, you know, well over a decade now, and it's not defeated Al-Shabaab. So I think the lesson number one is that we have to think beyond military attempts to try and engage with Al-Shabaab. And then therefore lesson number two is what would a, a sort of end to this war look like and what role would political dialogue play? And I think the most obvious um, conclusion here to draw is that some form of negotiated settlement is probably the way that this conflict is going to end. Now, what are the dynamics of that type of political dialogue? How should it start up? What should the um, the terms be? Who should be the main um, participants? That, I would say, is primarily for Somalis to decide for themselves. Uh, it's not a set of issues that I would say it's being... Um, very useful to have the US government out in front of, uh, you know, taking the public initiative, maybe in the way that we've seen in Afghanistan. But I think the the second big lesson is crucially that there has to be some sort of negotiated um, uh, deal to end this war.
1: Sometimes Paul is so diplomatic, and he is he's always so intelligent in the way he presents these issues that I, I wonder if I'm understanding correctly. Um, so Paul, when you say negotiated political settlement, are you referring to U.S. troops sort of pulling out, the Somali government collapsing completely, and uh, sort of walking away and leaving the Somalis to pick up the pieces?
2: No, I don't think I wouldn't equate a negotiated settlement with automatic withdrawal by the United States or the African Union forces. I fact, I would say almost the opposite. If you look at the ma- vast majority of peace operations deployed around the world, they deploy after a peace deal has been signed. Uh, Somalia is, I think, an almost unique case in uh, modern peace operations, because AMISOM has been deployed for over 12 years in Somalia without any form of ceasefire or any form of political settlement at all. And that's why it's not right to call it a peacekeeping mission, as you mentioned earlier. It's essentially a war fighting or enforcement mission. So when I talk about a negotiated settlement here, I think there's definitely scope for external actors to continue um, to provide various types of security guarantees. But it would be up to the local um, uh, belligerents, in this case, al-Shabaab and the the federal government and the regions, to decide the particular terms on which international engagement should take place. And then I think it's a related but sort of distinct issue is what is the, uh, as I would put it, what is the threshold at which point the US military would cease to be engaged and active in Somalia? I think that's a question we really do have to think about, because I agree with Bronwyn that Al-Shabaab doesn't pose any sort of top tier national security threats to the United States directly. So we should be considering and and thinking explicitly about what are the levels of threat and risk, if you like, that we would see US military disengage from um, Somalia, but also the African Union.
1: My concern would be that It's not necessarily a question of the U.S. military disengaging because the U.S. is taking direct action in Somalia with drone strikes, airstrikes, and other kinetic activities. Ambassador Bolton, our national security advisor, has laid out the U.S. strategy for Africa, national security strategy for Africa. And he's been witheringly critical of peacekeeping missions. And So it's a very possible scenario that the U.S. government will cut funding for Amazon and starve it to the point where it's essentially ineffective or is so starved for funding that Uganda, for example, carries out its threat to simply withdraw wholesale because it's offended by, um, by the U.S. terms. In which case, the U.S. could very well not have a peacekeeping mission in Somalia, but could continue to bombard Somali targets. Um, by use of special forces, central intelligence, and other means?
2: Yes, all I'm saying is that I think the rationale for that type of engagement would be undermined if there was a political deal between the Somali authorities and, and Al-Shabaab. I think the the threats you describe about Amasom and the, the threats to its funding stream are, are real. But what I would say is a, a couple of things. Number one, We've seen for years uh, diplomatic and rhetorical threats by the um, some of the troop contributing countries to withdraw, but so far the only troop contributing country that's left Amazon was Sierra Leone, and that was because it was forced to leave by the Somali government because of the Ebola outbreak back in um, in West Africa. So Uganda, Burundi, Djibouti, Kenya, and Ethiopia have all at various times you know threatened um, to withdraw because of the lack of financial support and other things. But they've not actually um, sort of voted with their feet, if you like. Now, that, that could, as the problems intensify, happen in the future. But I, I think we need to sort of consider that history as to the reasons why uh, AMISOM's uh, troop-contributing countries have stayed there.
1: I absolutely acknowledge that. I do think it's different under the Trump administration. I don't think a U.S. administration has called the troop-contributing countries bluff in the past. And I suspect that the Trump administration may.
2: Yeah, and it's getting worse. I mean, the, the funding situation at the moment is actually a very big sort of, I would say, depressing factor on the morale of Amazon troops, um, not just because of U.S. Um, um, policies from the Trump administration, but mainly because of the European Union cutting 20 percent of the allowances that are paid to Amazon troops. It means that since January 2016, Amazon soldiers have been receiving about $800 a month in uh, allowances or rather I should say their governments have been receiving about $800 a month in allowances. That compares at the moment to UN Blue Helmet peacekeeping missions, which receive about $1,400 a month. So if you put it in financial terms, an Amazon peacekeeper is receiving about 60% of the allowances that a UN Blue Helmet peacekeeper would receive. And the Amazon mission is by far Uh, more deadly and dangerous than any of the UN peacekeeping missions that are going on. So those financial pressures are are real and they are having an impact on the morale of the uh, contributing countries.
0: So I want to take this conversation and as we close, I want to ask you to do something that's pretty much impossible. I want to ask you both to think forward 10 years, and as we're looking back on what's going on in Somalia, what do you think the most likely um, place we will be is? Or maybe there's more than one path, but uh, for each of you, where do you think we'll be in 10 years with this?
1: You want to go first, Paul?
0: (laughs) I can try.
2: Yeah, the future is my best subject uh, (laughs) sort of thing. Um, So look, I I think if you look at the power dynamics in South Central Somalia in particular, and I'm not even going to try and address the Somaliland and that type of issue. But if you look at South Central, where Amazon is engaged, and most of the US activity is going on. And if you look at power dynamics there, what you see is a very decentralized um, playing field, I think, with lots of different sort of regional clan-based centers of power. And what that says to me is that a decade from now, you're likely to see a debate about governance issues, which divides up the power broadly along those decentralized terms. So you'll have some sort of federal arrangement or whatever word we we use to describe it. But it will be a situation where power is quite, um, I think, dispersed across the clans. And in, in that scenario, if Somalis themselves um, can actually agree on the terms of governance and what a sort of federal system would look like, um, then I think uh, an organization like al-Shabaab might actually diminish in the sense that you may have obviously some of the the sort of fringe, true believers who would never want to participate in this type of um, governance. But as Bronwyn mentioned earlier, I think the vast majority would find some way of of being brought brought into this political dispensation. Um, And in that scenario, there wouldn't be a great need for either major US military engagement or African Union troops as we see them today. Bronwyn?
1: I, I think the challenge for the US is that once again, we have a stalemate in Somalia. It is I think unquestionably clear that the Somali government is not capable of surviving on its own. After a decade, after a decade in which the U.S. has poured billions of dollars into the effort to empower this government, um, after approximately 100,000 troops have been trained for this government and tens of thousands of peacekeepers deployed for this government, they have not managed to defeat a force of five to 7,000 guys, which is what al-Shabaab is. They're not only weaker than al-Shabaab, they're weaker than Puntland, they're weaker than Somaliland, they're weaker than Jubaland. They're not sustainable. The U.S. project has failed. And the question is how the U.S. will react to that. My guess is, and again, you know, I'm a cynical person at this point, my guess is that the U.S. will cut and run and will leave the Somalis to pick up the pieces. And the good news is that I'm actually optimistic about the Somalis capabilities when it comes to doing that. I think that Somalia has done best when it's been left alone. Because at rock bottom, what Somalia needs is grassroots reconciliation of the type that the international community has not been able to support. The intrusion of foreign funding and and foreign political objectives has been very damaging to Somalia. And I think that if the Somalis can develop new partnerships with the Gulf states and other actors, um, if it can get away from this artificial conflict between the Shabaab and the Somali government, it is likely to make progress a lot faster than it has over the past decade. Um, So I'm overall optimistic. Um, and I have to say my optimism is in direct proportion to the likelihood of the U.S. being less involved in the situation.
2: I think Bronwyn's mentioned the key word for me, which is reconciliation. Uh, I 100% agree that what the I think would drive the country forward in the most positive sense is if there is real reconciliation that takes place. And just to clarify sort of what I mean by that there, I mean both at the sort of elite level in terms of the politicians that lead the federal government and the regional administrations but also, as Bronwyn said, at the grassroots level. And I think this goes back to the the civil war in the late 1980s, and we really have seen an absence of reconciliation since then, and we, and we badly need to see it... Um improve as a result.
0: So, Brownwood Bruton of the Atlantic Council and Paul Williams of George Washington University, I just want to thank you both so much for being here. I think this is a part of the world that many people don't understand very well. And I have learned a tremendous amount from our conversation and just want to thank you for being on Deep Dish.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks very much. And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, do me a favor and tap the subscribe button on your podcast app. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy today's episode, please take a moment and tap the share button so you can send it to them as well. I'd like to invite you to join our Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs, where you can ask our guests follow-up questions about anything you heard today or also submit questions for upcoming guests and episodes. That's Deep Dish on Global Affairs on Facebook. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. This episode of Deep Dish was produced by Evan Fazio. Our audio engineer is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hanson, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.